Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 40 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome the renowned evolutionary biologist and paleontologist Bruce Lieberman, currently a professor at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. A senior curator in the university's Biodiversity Institute, Lieberman received his Ph.D. from Columbia University in 1994 and did his postdoctoral work at Yale and Harvard, a rotating program officer at the National Science Foundation since August of last year. Lieberman is especially interested in the study of how geological change has affected evolution. But today we're primarily going to talk about how cataclysmic astrophysical events, such as cosmic gamma-ray bursts and nearby supernovae, as well as cataclysmic geological events here on Earth, impacted evolution. Lieberman joins us from Lawrence, Kansas. Bruce, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, how do you define evolutionary paleobiology? Well, paleobiology translates literally as, well, biology is the study of life, and paleo means ancient, so paleobiology is the discipline that focuses on the study of ancient life. And I am a paleobiologist, and I'm especially interested in evolution. So as an evolutionary paleobiologist, I use ancient life, in particular the life preserved in the fossil record, to study evolution, to study the pattern of evolution throughout the history of life, and also to, to reconstruct the processes that have driven the evolutionary pattern or the pattern that we see preserved in the fossil record. So in a, a 2009 article I wrote for Scientific American on the effect that Earth's anomalously large moon had on the formation of the earliest life on Earth, specifically the moon's effects on the tides, in the article I quote British molecular biologist Richard Laith as saying that some 3.9 billion years ago, fast tidal cycling caused by the influence of our moon enabled the formation of precursor nucleic acids. Precursors to life as we know it, right? Yeah, they're the fundamental building blocks of life. And the way we think that life evolved first involved a transition from RNA and then ultimately to DNA. And that's an interesting idea about the effects of the tides. And and I can't really evaluate the chemical aspects of this. Um, you know, I think that clearly the tides would have an effect on shallow water and shell marine environments. And we do know that, or we infer that life may have originated in shallow marine environments or some ideas about, or hypotheses about the origins of life focus on life in shallow water. On the flip side, there are other hypotheses that posit that life may have in, evolved in, in other environments on our planet. So I, I don't want to poo-poo that idea. I, I, it's one of many possible uh, factors that could have contributed in the same article, I quote you as saying, without tides, life would certainly have evolved and very likely invaded land. However, the life forms around would be very different than those around today, and likely marine diversity would not be as high as it is today. Tell us what you mean by that. Things that occur in shallow water are more likely to become geographically isolated. And part of that dynamic is controlled by things like climate change, but also in certain instances, the tides can contribute to creating geographic barriers as well, or the sort of the dynamic between the tides, the landscape, etc. 
So I would still hold to that perspective that, yeah, life would still have evolved without the tides. Um, life would have evolved in the oceans without the tides. But we probably would have seen something very different, partly because of this connection between shallow water and at least what we've seen throughout the last several hundred million years, that there's there tends to be an increased propensity for organisms in shallow marine systems to evolve, at, or they evolve at a faster rate than things in the deep ocean. And then you also said in the same article, I quoted you as saying, I suspect that eventually life would have made land without the tides, but the lineages that ultimately gave rise to humans, and this is the key point, were at first intertidal. I guess you would agree that we obviously have an anomalously large moon that impacts our ocean tides. Fishermen have, have known this for, for a millennia. So what about Earth-like planets that weren't so fortunate? Or what about even planets within our own solar system like Venus, which is, to our knowledge, that never had a, a moon? If life ever existed there, would Venus have had the same tides if it ever had oceans? Uh, ditto for Mars, because it really doesn't have, it only has two small moons. And I think, okay, so let me just take a step there, a step back there, because I do think that this is a critically important point. So partly what people have argued about the moon or our moon and its existence is it tells us something about how the planet originally formed. And it may well have formed associated with a massive collision between a large body and our planet and that, that, that large impact may have almost split the planet asunder or ultimately led to the release of a huge amount of, of um, material that eventually coagulated and formed our moon. Now, that initial collision that could have caused the formation of the moon also may have modified our atmosphere in a certain way that allowed types of conditions that we associate with or associate with being uh, uh, increase the likelihood that you would have a habitable planet exist. So in the case of Venus and Earth, they're very similar in size. Uh, as you said, we have a moon, Venus doesn't. So one of the puzzles is, hey, why do we see complex life evolving on, on Earth and, and there's little, if any, evidence that life ever evolved on Venus? And partly it has to do with this runaway greenhouse atmosphere that's present on Venus. Venus seems to have an atmospheric composition that may be more in line with an atmosphere that would have ultimately produ been produced by the initial conditions of an atmosphere that might have existed on Earth. But this large object that, that is hypothesized to have collided with our planet that ultimately created our moon also caused the outgassing of that atmosphere that would have been high in, in, in various chemicals, including argon. And by releasing that atmosphere, it may have ultimately made it possible through a complex chain of, of atmospheric reactions and events for our planet to avoid going to, into this runaway greenhouse state that we, that we see today on Venus. And, and, and certainly we, we associate the conditions with, that Venus has today and has had for a very long time as inhospitable uh, to supporting life as we know it. But, so it's partly like the existence of the moon, our moon, I think, and the way it forms. It's, it's a neat clue or insight into how life evolved on this planet. So I don't know how much the moon, and I think the moon does have certain influences absolutely on, on life and evolution, but it's also the fact that the moon exists 
our moon exists and the way it forms, that in a way ultimately may have um, facilitated the types of atmospheric conditions that we associate uh, with allowing the evolution of, of life and, and eventually large complex life. It's, it's a bit of the rare earth hypothesis. And Richard Lath, you know, I don't know if you've been to north of France and Mont Saint-Michel, uh, you know, it's a intertidal pool. And these Lath's idea is that these intertidal pools were probably the first place that these nucleic acids may have formed on, on earth. It, without the tides, you know, life arguably may have evolved, but the tides certainly sped up sped up the process yeah i think that is a um i think that is an interesting hypothesis i think it has some things that support it and gosh darn it once this pandemic's over i hope i can get to visit mont saint michel <laughs> so i can contemplate that hypothesis some more <laughs> actually you can at low tide you can actually walk out there for about a mile out into what would normally be submerged it's kind of muddy. You need some boots, but it's it's fascinating. Beautiful place. Your uh, undergraduate thesis advisor at Harvard was the late paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote in his 1991 book, which I have a copy of, uh, Wonderful Life, that if we were going to rewind and then replay the tape of life here on Earth, how could we ever know if life as we know it, complexity and intelligence included, would ever repeat itself here? So this is really the $64,000 question, isn't it? Yes, you know, and I think in in certain key respects, Steve was correct. Um, you know, when we talk about in, in a general sense, I think that there are some where I would diverge with uh, from him slightly. So it, sort of his argument is that, hey, there's no reason to expect that that humans would evolve uh, there if we could run life over again, uh, the, the experiment of life over again in sort of his hypothetical thought experiment. And I think that's true, partly just because there are so many um, evolutionary transitions, you know, that get from the first life forms to to any of the species that are alive today. I, where I might diverge with him a bit, and actually I, I think he would accept this general point as well, because we did get to debate this or, or talk about this issue. Um, you know, sort of when you're an undergraduate and, and you're dealing with with um, a professor like Stephen Jay Gould, who's, who's a, a great scientist and, and a very world-renowned scientist too, it's not as much debating as listening, but we did get to do him, but we, I did get to talk with him about it. And I think he would say that there are certain, certain general patterns that, that you might expect to see on any, any time that life evolves, but humanity or even the origins of intelligence – those were the big things that he was trying to single out as sort of things that were very unlikely. And I, and I think he's right about that. And this is why he said that, um, or, or this is why he held that view, and why I would basically accept that. That if, you know, of course, it, it gets into a lot of other complicated but but interesting philo philosophical issues, like like what do we mean by intelligence? And and in Gould's particular case, he was talking about uh, the intelligence that we associate with humanity. That is the that that in the last, let's say. 
40,000 years, certainly in the last 10,000 years, has produced a complex technological civilization that is capable of space travel, uh, development of computers, uh, radio and other means of communication across great distances. And so he could just say, look, today there are 10 million species on Earth, you know, and probably hundreds of millions of species have existed on this planet but gone extinct. And there's only one that has a technological uh, civilization. So it just seems to be a, a, an astronomically small circumstance. So is there a vector towards abiogenesis, which I believe means the evolution of life from the chemistry of any given planet? You know, I do think that when we use the term vector, and I, so th this is a great question, as, as all of the questions are. I think that there, do, there are lots of planets where we see the existence of compounds. Um, in fact, this is even true in, on other planets in our solar system. Compounds that in general could support the development ultimately of amino acids and, and proteins. So I think there is a fairly good chance that the conditions for life exist on a great many other planets throughout the universe and further that something like life can come to fruition. I mean, I, I think it happens accidentally, but there's lots of, lots of places where we're likely to have the conditions that permit this to occur. What's the earliest known astrophysical event that perhaps impacted the early evolution of life here on Earth? Gamma, gamma ray bursts, we know, can have an impact, and these are the most energetic known explosions in the cosmos thought to be caused by the merger of two neutron stars or the collapse of a massive star in a giant supernova. Supernova is the explosion of stars or a star possibly by gravitational collapse uh, during which a star's luminosity increases by as much as 20 magnitudes. There are all types of supernova, uh, core collapse, and then there's a type 1a which uh, explode by a different mechanism. But basically, they increase the star's luminosity by as much as 20 magnitudes. And uh, a lot of the star's mass is blown away at very high velocity, sometimes leaving behind an extremely dense core. And if you're close enough, just like a gamma ray burst, the radiation from a supernova can wreak havoc on uh, planetary atmospheres. Yes, and, and in the case of the gamma ray burst, uh, I, along with my colleagues, uh, Professor Adrian Malat, or Emeritus Professor Adrian Malat, who's in the Department of Physics at the University of Kansas, along with Brian Thomas at, at Washburn University and, and some other scientists, have uh, put forth a hypothesis that basically the first big mass extinction that we see among the animals in the fossil record, uh, what's referred to as the end Ordovician mass extinction, which occurred about 440 million years ago, a gamma ray burst may have contributed in an important way to causing that mass extinction. And, and you also mentioned supernovae as well. I think there's some other, um, there's evidence uh, at other times, more recent times in the history of life, that supernovae may have contributed to extinction events as well. So in a Forbes post, I note that you and um, a lot and colleagues first put the forth, forth the idea that a GRB may have triggered the late Ordovician extinction, as you mentioned. So that was an era that saw the disappearance of some 85% of Earth's marine life. And the hypothesis is simply that a 10-second pulse of high-energy X-rays and gamma rays from a GRB within our galaxy unexpectedly entered Earth's upper atmosphere and quickly destroyed the planet's protective layer of stratospheric ozone. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's what we argued. And I think that 
obviously reconstructing events that happened 440 million years ago and, and what caused species to go extinct is always a tricky is a tricky matter. Um, but we do have some evidence that suggests that this could or this type of event could have occurred or likely did occur at least once within the last 500 million years or so um, when you do the astronomical and astrophysical modeling with rates of star formation and, and gamma ray bursts occurring. There would have been a gamma ray burst relatively nearby. And actually, because gamma ray bursts are so darn powerful, relatively nearby takes on sort of a, um, a different type of perspective than we might have sort of when we're talking about uh, nearby things, uh, uh, you know, down the street or down the block. So we're talking about an event that probably was still 6,000 light years away. But it's just so tremendously powerful that an object at that distance could have this dramatic impact on the atmosphere of planet Earth, which could lead to dramatic increases in ultraviolet radiation, and also could maybe trigger the types of climatic changes that are seen around this time in the fossil record. And then last year in Forbes, uh, I note that an ancient extinction event some 350, 359 million years ago in Earth's past was likely triggered by incoming cosmic rays from a supernova only 65 light years distant. So, in other words, we're talking about a GRB, a gamma ray burst that can wreak havoc on our atmosphere from 6,000 light years away, as opposed to a supernova, which at only 65 light years away can can do some real damage. I mean, it's amazing, you know, the, the difference, I guess, in the uh, the power of the of the gamma rays as opposed to the cosmic rays from the supernova. But the supernova lay just beyond the kill distance at which incoming radiation from the event would have precipitated a full mass extinction. So Earth life at the end of the so-called Devonian Carboniferous boundary missed an outright global extinction. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so just to kind of quantify it, you put some numbers on the amount of extinction that we see at the end of the Ordovician. Just to compare that to like the extinction uh, 65 million years ago, which we think of as the time when the dinosaurs extinct, that extinction event at the end of the Ordovician led to a much greater loss or percentage loss of biodiversity relative to the event that happened 65 million years ago. Um, And both are considered mass extinctions, two of the the big five mass extinctions that have occurred in in the, the last 550 million years. The event that we're talking about at the end of the Devonian or the Devonian Carniferous boundary about 360 million years ago, that was a more muted time of extinction, but we're still talking about maybe 10% of all the species, uh, marine species present at the time, uh, and marine animal species that present at the time going extinct. So it, it definitely is a, an, an uptick in the rate of extinction, but it's not uh, an, as dramatic an uptick as the one that happened 440 million years ago that we've posited might be associated with the gamma ray burst. So let's just give the... Uh the audience a bit of an idea of what kind of marine life were present 440 million years ago because this is a period of the earth's history where very few people know about the dinosaurs and they know about the hominid evolution pretty much and they know about the earliest microbes that may have come about maybe 3.9 billion years ago but people the average person has no clue what was uh present during the Ordovician period Ordovician period, or the Devonian period. Is this the Trilobite era? Yes, so you're absolutely right that this was a time when one of the life 
or animal life forms that was really dominant or, or very important in terms of its diversity were the trilobites. Uh, trilobites are one of the groups that I specialize on. I, I really love studying trilobites and focusing on them, but sadly they're, they're extinct. And uh, they, the reason they're extinct is partly because massive extinction events like the one at the end of the Ordovician had a particularly negative impact on them. When we think about life in the oceans at this time, Probably in a general sense, your average person would be able to say, okay, a trilobite, well, we don't have anything like trilobites, but it's distantly related to things like crabs or, or insects, but it, it lives in the oceans. And, and indeed, most of the life, at least the macroscopic life that was present at this time is in the oceans. So there are things uh, present at that time as well. The, the group that we refer to today as the mollusk that includes things like clams and snails. There would have been clams and snails present back then. Uh, they would have looked different uh, or as different as a clam can look uh, from one another. There were other types of organisms called brachiopods. That they're still present today but in much reduced number. These were also particularly common at the time. Of course, today, another very important um, organism in oceans are, are corals. Um, there were corals present back in the Ordovician, but they would have been a very different type of coral than the ones that are alive today. So it's, I sort of say in a very broad brush, people would be able to recognize the, the, the types of organisms that were present. But, but most of them, you know, they, they are distinct from anything that's still alive today. And so what you're saying is that the trilobites today are extinct, although the distant progeny of the clams and mussels that first appeared back in this Devonian Ordovician period uh, are still around uh, because we're eating them <laughs> as part of what our, a shellfish platter, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Or, uh, you know, at uh, fish fries across the Midwest or wherever. But uh, anyway... So uh, I digress, but what you're saying is the trilobites, which is one of your favorite species, its demise is probably related to one of these gamma ray bursts. Is that right? Maybe that one from 6,000 uh, light years away. First of all, I mean, just thinking about fried clams and sitting in Kansas right now, that's making me really hungry. I, 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 many a time I got to spend a summer in Maine, and, and there's some of the best fried clams I've ever eaten were there. So, so I'm getting a little hungry right about now, but you're absolutely right. In the Ordovician, that was a great time to be a trilobite, at least in t if we look at their total diversity, also the abundance. So if you go and look at any fossil deposits in the Ordovician, trilobites are, are pretty common. And after this mass extinction at the end of the Ordovician, their diversity takes a huge hit. They do eventually recover some of that diversity, but then there's another mass extinction Around the time of this, uh, but slightly before the time when we've posited a supernova occurred about 360 million years ago. And again, trilobites take a huge hit um, in the terms of their diversity. And then finally, there's another mass extinction event 250 million years ago. And again, that's the one that gives the coup de grace to trilobites. So it's almost like during, during most of the time, it's really great to be a trilobite. But when there's times of tremendous environmental change or, or catastrophe, that they, they don't do so well. By contrast, clams, you know, it was, it was, it was an okay time to be a clam back in the Ordovician, and, and it's still okay to be a clam today. 
And there's something about clams, maybe their lifestyle or, or whatever, that allows them to hunker down during these times of catastrophe such that overall they tend to do better than organisms like trilobites. And that's one of the reasons that, that clams are alive today trilobites aren't. I mean, in some re- ways, right, this is one of the reasons that, that life forms are a little less exciting today. Sort of the exciting things like trilobites went extinct. And maybe the evolutionary strategy of the clam is in the long term, maybe they, they evolve more slowly, but they've got an evolutionary strategy that that allows them to persist. And and at least, you know, for the existence of fried clams, and, and I should say too, because many other things in, in the oceans that we depend on, uh, depend on clams, I'm really happy that clams are still alive today. Though it would have been awesome if, or would be awesome if trilobites were still around too. So let's fast forward. In a 2018 uh, Forbes post, I noted that you and other authors of a paper in the journal Astrobiology point to smoking gun evidence of an extinction event some 2.6 million years ago that would have been caused by one or more supernova within 100, 150 light years of Earth. The research, uh, which was led by Malat, uh, who was the professor emeritus at the University of Kansas, notes that muons are elementary particles similar to a, an electron but with a much greater mass would have penetrated at least hundreds of yards Beneath the ocean surface, a lot of this radiation would have been absorbed by large marine animals. Malat and colleagues posit that that the megalodon, a fierce shark-like creature thought to be at least the size of a school bus, uh, was rendered extinct because of this this, uh, supernova event. And really, it is very hard to, uh, to pin down what causes ancient extinction events, and especially when we're looking at evidence in the fossil record and, and certain species go extinct and others don't. We don't really always know why. We just know that it happened. So it's really good to be able to have a, a marker that shows why or at least provides some evidence as to why something happened. And in the case of this potential supernovae 2.6 million years ago, there is this, this what we refer to as a sort of a geochemical spike of iron-60, which is the type of radioactive isotope we would associate with a supernovae event. And really, it, going back to the, to the discoveries in the early 1980s that convinced people that it was an asteroid impact that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs, people were never really willing to accept or accept a specific cause for what caused that dinosaur to go extinct just on the basis of the fossil evidence. But then when the iridium anomaly was discovered, uh, people became convinced. I'm not really sure what this is about, Bruce. I, I think people are just more likely to listen to evidence from chemicals than fossils, which to me is somewhat unfortunate. But but they were able to to talk about this particular chemical evidence. And, and often that is the type of evidence that really convinces people that this would have been a causal factor. Then, you know, after having that evidence, they were able to piece together the types of extinctions that occurred at that time. So about 2.5, 2.6 million years ago, this is a time of major climate change. Um, supernovae could have contributed to that into certain ways. And one of the other things that is seen is that there's a, uh, an extinction, there's an increase in extinction. We wouldn't call it a mass extinction because t- sort of the percentage extinction increases is not equivalent to other times of mass extinction in the history of life. But there is a definite uptick in extinction, especially among large-bodied organisms. So one of the most 
charismatic and, and quite frankly, truly scary uh, organisms like Carcardon megalodon, which is just this giant shark that um, also featured in a movie with uh, Jason Statham and The Rock, which you know, sort of fascinating thing for a paleontologist to get to visualize what these things might have looked like. Um, yeah, this is something that goes extinct at this time. So it might be thought of as to be generally in line with larger things are more likely to be affected by the muons that would be produced by supernovae. So sort of they've got this geochemical signature, and then they talk about paleontological patterns that provide additional suggestions as to why this happened. If you had to choose between which actually did more damage or had a greater impact on evolution on Earth, would it be gamma ray births or would it be supernovae? You know, in a way, it's paradoxical, but I actually think it's the supernovae, partly because their effects are smaller, um, but their likelihood is much greater, or they're much more likely to have occurred in our galactic vicinity. Or, or, or let's put it this way, if a, if a GRB had occurred too close to us, it would have been game over for life on this planet, and so we know that didn't happen. By contrast, supernovae to occur nearby and likely to have the types of, of effects that, hey, if you add these these cements up enough, they're going to produce a much greater amount of total extinction than the one rare gamma ray burst would produce. Now, on the flip side, if I had to say, hey, would I rather be around when there's a gamma ray burst or a supernovae? Both would be terrible, right? But I'd probably prefer to be around during a nearby supernovae. But in the long term, added up over hundreds of millions of years, and because we expect that they should occur near to us on a time frame of every maybe five million years or so, ones that are close enough to us, in the long term, that ends up to have a bigger impact on evolution in terms of the species, that the number of species that went extinct, but also sort of the pivotal environmental changes that ultimately led to uh, subsequent evolutions. Let's switch gears a bit. In a 2013 issue of Sky and Telescope, I write that plate tectonics is arguably the most underappreciated factor in the astrobiological equation. On Earth, rigid tectonic plates composed of a combination of the upper mantle and surface crust inevitably collide with and subduct, that is, slide and sink under other plates. Subduction depletes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and acts as a built-in thermostat, uh, enabling Earth to maintain habitable temperatures over billions of years. So, in other words, our current habitable atmosphere ultimately depends upon tec tec plate tectonics. Plate tectonics is an underappreciated and truly fun or has a truly fundamental influence or has had on the evolution of life and our planet's atmosphere. And, and it, it, it also, I think, provides an important bellwether for whether or not life can exist elsewhere on other planets. Um, so sort of one of the reasons plate tectonics is so important, as you said, sort of provides a way of, of regulating the climate, obviously having sort of a, a, cl a climate that doesn't vary too much between extremes. That probably does make uh, a planet more hospitable to life. 
Another way that plate tectonics contributes fundamentally to evolution is that it provides for increased or, or certain aspects of the plate tectonic uh, process, in particular when continents and other regions split apart, that can lead to geographic isolation, which encourages opportunities for speciation and leads to increases in evolutionary rates. The final area where I think plate tectonics is really pivotal um, kind of gets to the issue or, or some of the issues that NASA has focused on in their, in their quest or search for life elsewhere in the universe. And that's sort of the issue of follow the water or look for evidence of water. So I think that the fact that for plate tectonics to occur on a planet partly depends on the size of the planet um, or for, for a rocky planet. If a rocky planet is too small, you won't have long-term persistent plate tectonics. Further, what that would mean is that that planet is unlikely to be gravitationally powerful enough to hold on to an atmosphere. So the atmosphere, again, seems to be a, an atmosphere, a certain type of atmosphere in particular, seems to be essential for the existence of life. So partly plate tectonics, you know, or the existence of plate tectonics on a planet implies that it exists in, in this Goldilocks zone, that it's not too close to a, a star where it would be incredibly hot. It's not so far away that it would be incredibly cold and, and devoid of water at the surface. It's going to have a right, the right size planet that it can support an atmosphere. It's not going to be too big that it would become a, a, a gas giant, which... So we suppose could support life, but it at least would be a different type of life than we're familiar with. So partly the existence of plate tectonics would be a really good indicator or, or make it likely that a planet will be able to support life. But Earth is the only planet in our solar system known to have active plate tectonics. Uh, thus, within our own solar system, I write that the lesson from Venus is that many terrestrial planets and moons are likely to be in a temporary stagnant lid phase akin to a steaming sometimes roiling pot of soup locked under an immobile lid mars in contrast is so small and cold that its tectonics uh, qualifies as a permanent stagnant lid as you mentioned without plate tectonics it's unlikely that earth would have its current continent ocean crustal dichotomy that's exactly right. And I think the situation with Venus is kind of interesting because the size of the planet Venus is what we would associate with being permissible for plate tectonic service, approximately the same size. Not sure your dog outside. agrees with that, but <laughs> <laughs> but continue. <laughs> Please Here continue. Okay. The planet Venus is probably... In terms of the planetary size, Venus is so similar to our Earth that in, in that respect, in terms of internal heat, it probably is is the right size to have plate tectonics. And it might have been a sort of unique event in the history of our planet that didn't happen to Venus that might explain the the difference between the existence of plate tectonics, which we have here, and its lack on Earth. In particular, it's related to this issue of why, one, one of the hypotheses for why we have a moon, and by contrast, Venus doesn't, that there was this early collision with, between a large body and our planet that, that ultimately, um, it was such a powerful explosion that a big chunk of the Earth came off. It was originally a dust cloud, but ultimately formed into the moon. And that initial collision may actually have 
freed our initial atmosphere, caused our initial atmosphere, which would have been high in argon, to become liberated, um, basically goes up in smoke. So we kind of got a reset on our atmosphere, and that allowed for more moderate temperatures where you could have the presence of liquid water um, at the surface and into depth. And, and water plays a big role not only in allowing life to happen, but also in allowing plate tectonics to happen. But the, but, the, but the main thing about the plate tectonics is that it it provides a, a way to recycle carbon. It absolutely does. But further, because there never was such a collision on Venus, at least as far as we know, it didn't, didn't or it wasn't big enough to produce a moon, that this early atmosphere of Venus was never liberated. And what that led to eventually was a runaway greenhouse effect, which meant that it was so darn hot that the surface temperature of Venus is, in fact, a lot hotter than Mercury. And that's because of this greenhouse, this, this greenhouse atmosphere that it literally baked the waters off of the rocks at the surface and to depth. And without that water in the rocks, probably the type of ductile motion that we associate with plate tectonics wasn't possible. When do you think plate tectonics? I mean, there's an argument about this. Uh, I mean, there's dis- there there are different differing opinions on this. When do you think plate tectonics on Earth actually began? Partly depends on how you define plate tectonics. So I probably would put the, the time when platonic originate plate tectonics originated on our planet more in an intermediate between those two extremes, right? So I think. Probably about 100 million years after the planet formed, um, most of the surface may have been molten, but there were areas where there were smaller plates. The sort of the lithosphere boundary might have been much shallower, but you were starting to form little elements of crust. And there is some evidence that that does happen early in the history of the planet. But if you're thinking, or when we think about plate tectonics today, there are large lithospheric blocks. So, sort of the this overall parameters that we see today, I think that we're safe in saying that that probably begins about two to two and a half billion years ago. How did plate tectonics drive speciation? I guess uh, you should define speciation before you answer that question. To come back to this issue, I do think plate tectonics plays a fundamental role in evolution in terms of how it influences the climate, but also the way it uh, contributes to speciation. So basically, speciation is the process whereby one species splits into two or more species. And and, and really a key aspect of of getting to the issue of speciation is what the heck is a species? And and I think that's really one of the the, uh, species are sort of a, a key evolutionary unit. Um, at least when we're talking about multicellular organisms like animals and also plants. Species contain groups of organisms. When we think of species, we think about these representing the smallest cluster of organisms that are reproducing with themselves, at least consistently, and not reproducing with organisms in in other species, at least consistently. And so what this means is that species are things that have a birth point, which is their speciation point. They have a death point when they go extinct, and they also persist for some period of time. And and sort of, in fact, their persistence over the course of millions of years means that they have distinct evolutionary histories and tendencies that, that separate them from other such species. Robert Stern, a geologist at the University of Texas in Dallas, cautioned 
cautions that a rocky Earth-like planet won't necessarily have active geology. He, quote, he says, if you ask us whether a planet around Alpha Centauri has plate tectonics, we'll give an opinion, but it won't be an informed opinion because we don't really understand plate tectonics on our own world. Well, you know, I think that if we found a rocky Earth-like planet in sort of this Goldilocks zone and there was water, some way that we can identify that water was present in the atmosphere, then I would say that we could offer an opinion that plate tectonics was present and also it would be a well-informed opinion. But simply finding a rocky uh, Earth-sized planet, I agree with with uh, Robert Stern, that's, that's correct. Um, but I think that there are other... Are other things that we could look for that might provide additional evidence to, to give a better um, uh, or more informed opinion. So Stern guesses that most silicate uh, exoplanets will have some kind of stagnant lid single plate tectonics, as we discussed about Venus, of the sort found on Mars as well. But he says, quote, the supposition that plate tectonics should be expected on a high proportion of exoplanets is utter nonsense. I think that it's going to partly depend on the initial atmospheric conditions on that planet and ultimately what the temperature regime is like. So I would agree in the case of Venus, if we, if we just knew Venus and we didn't know the Earth, we would be in a very different situation, right? We'd say, hey, given an Earth-sized planet that, that seems to be in the Goldilocks zone, it doesn't have at least the type of active plate tectonics that we'd associate with the, the way we traditionally define plate tectonics. So Venus, Venus does serve as a very good counterexample to just say, aha, rocky planet, bright distance, it's got to have plate tectonics. I, you know, I think so. It also partly does depend on the types of atmospheres that we would see on such a planet. And, and you know, technologies are continually improving and not just to the detection of the size of planets or exoplanets, but also their atmosphere. So just knowing it's rocky and just knowing its distance isn't enough. I, I agree with, with Robert Stern there. But if we could say something about its atmosphere, for instance, if it was very high in CO2, then I'd probably say, yeah, this planet's likely too hot to, to support at least a, an Earth-type plate tectonics. But by contrast, if we were getting signatures of other compounds in the atmosphere, uh, oxygen, uh, water, certain other compounds, then we might be able to say a little more. In a 2015 Forbes article, I write that to evolve, intelligence is thought to also require some sort of environmental stressor. For humans, that arguably happened some 20 million years ago as a result of fluctuations in East Africa's climate due to the formation of the East African Rift System. Long-held evolutionary theory has been that regional climate upheaval due to a 6,000-mile-long deep crack in Earth's crust, which extends from present-day Mozambique to Lebanon, may have spurred the need for emerging primates to develop an intellect capable of predictive analysis in order to manage chronic food shortages. When we consider sort of the the factors or the major factors that seem to, to be, if we study the fossil record and also modern biota, the major, one of the major factors that drives evolution is environmental change. Environmental stressors are in general the, the primary motivating force of evolution. 
I'll go a step further when we talk about humans and our intelligence, actually. So we as humans belong to a group, mammals, that already had for their body size the largest brain size, uh, brain to body size ratios, indicating that mammals as a group are highly intelligent and mammals evolved 159 years ago. Further, we belong in particular to an order of mammals called the primates. They first appear about 55 million years ago, and they too, among all mammals, have the largest brain size to body size ratio. So we're part of a highly intelligent group nested within a highly intelligent group. And then there are these environmental changes that start to occur um, about 20 million years ago, uh, partly associated with the development of the East African Rift and some other plate tectonic changes as well. And it's these climatic events that ultimately are associated with some evolutionary events that were critical or, or pivotal in the history of our own specific clade within primates, the hominids. And and you obviously we can't uh, uh, discuss uh, the evolution of mammals without mentioning the demise of the dinosaurs and the one-off impactor uh, 65, 66 million years ago in the Gulf of Mexico, the Chicxulub impact, which kind of like precipitated the demise of the dinosaurs with a kind of a nuclear winter. And more recently, we've been hearing about the Deccan traps uh, on the Indian subcontinent uh, that may have also thought to, is thought to have contributed at this time to the demise of the dinosaurs. Yeah, so I think the best evidence... It, or sorry, the, the best supported hypothesis is that there's an asteroid impact that occurs 65 million years ago that triggers the extinction of, of the non-flying dinosaurs and many other groups as well. And it is possible that that asteroid impact may have in turn contributed to this massive outwelling of uh, volcanic lava that today is, is exactly as, as you rightly said is, is found in India and that too would have had a major impact not just on the Indian subcontinent and making parts of it largely inhospitable but also would have changed atmospheric chemistry would have led to a profound climate change on the planet as well so I sort of think of it as like there's this there's this big asteroid impact around this time. You get this massive outflowing of, of, of lava in the area of India. It's the second, or I think it's the second largest volcanic outflow uh, in the last 500 million years. So it's truly prodigious, and that would have had major impacts locally um, and also global impacts on climate. And then uh, much more recently, one such uh, environmental stressor late in Earth's history may have inadvertently been caused by a series of supernovae which triggered forest fires here on Earth, ranging from some 8 million years ago to 2.6 million years ago. Uh, in a 2018 Forbes post, I write, wildfires triggered by lightning from the aftereffects of a series of these ancient supernova may have caused proto-humans to walk on two feet. The idea is that these hominins would have been driven from torched forests and forced to adapt to newly created Northeast African savannas. Well, it is clearly a time, or this is clearly a time of major climate changes on the planet, uh, aridification. There, 
there is some evidence that there might have been increased global wildfires or or let's not say global but large spread wildfires that we'd also associate with these drought type conditions uh, more lightning would affect the in- environment in several ways leading to potentially more fires but also providing nitrogen input so it could affect productivity levels as well and i think that if you look at the initial divergence of our lineage from chimp-like ancestors, the first change is not a change in brain size, but it's a change in posture. So it's the, the earliest hominids don't really have a brain that is much larger than, than modern or ancestral chimps. But the big difference is that they are spending uh, most of their time walking on two legs. Uh, they're walking upright. So there is a big trend, uh, change. That's the big change we see initially. And it does seem to coincide with this change in climate. So we could sort of say, yeah, it, it sort of makes sense that the ability to move greater distances on two legs could have been uh, beneficial at this time. So I quote you in Forbes as saying that uh, for intelligence to evolve, you would have to have a series of speciation events, which you mentioned, and these can rely on or at least primarily be accomplished by geographic isolation. Anything that causes geographic isolation becomes one of the primary motors of evolution. That's absolutely right. And, and to bring it back to this time of climatic change that, that sort of occurred between about eight and two and a half million years ago that you just mentioned – those climate changes are one of the things that would very much contribute – the climate changes that occur to the time would very much contribute and increase opportunities for geographic isolation, especially in organisms that lived in the tropics. And our, our ancestors lived in the tropics and tropical Africa, so there are these major changes in climate that are associated potentially with the supernovae and also the development and spread of the East African Rift. So it's the climate changes, they create stressors, but they also create opportunities for geographic isolation. And it's sort of the two working in concert would be expected to increase the opportunities for speciation, also increasing extinction as well around this time. Let me ask you a crazy question. I, and I, there was an article in the New York Times a few years ago, and this is, I'm totally kind of digressing, but I, that... One reason that humans are attracted to water, there, there are two reasons that humans could be attracted to water views or water. Uh, one is that because ancestrally we evolved from, we, we were water-based organisms, right? I mean, you could argue that life came, uh, came from the water and, and it's in our DNA um, to be attracted to water. And number two, because we were made up of water. And number three, we seem to also have a propensity. People seem to also love to have. They did a survey of, of people who chose real estate, and most people seem to prefer if they, you know, were in some sort of development at a country club. They love to have trees, kind of an open space with a meadow and then a lake. And the reason for that kind of combination of those three elements is because that resembled. The, the the thinking is that it's in our DNA because that, that's what the African savannas way back when that's that was a landscape that we first evolved from. I would say this that if anybody was going to offer me a vacation home on the ocean, <laughs> I'd take it in a heartbeat. 
And I'd, you know, I'd proffer some evolutionary explanation for my desire to do that, and it could be accurate, and it might not be. But gosh darn it, I like living in Kansas too, and that does partly explain why the property values are a lot cheaper here, because we just don't have those ocean views. But um, people in Kansas, on the other hand, love lakes. I mean, you know, right? You love uh, forests and lakes. Uh, particularly lakes are, are high value. Yes, that's very true. And, you know, I... There are some things that would really compel me to live by a lake. The one thing that might be a detractor is just all the mosquitoes that you tend to get associated with them. But you're absolutely right. And there, you know, I, I think this gets to a broader and, and very important point, which is that we are fundamentally, our species and, and all organisms, right? But, but this points out what you're saying, that how we are all fundamentally connected to nature. We crave natural environments it's been shown right that people who are exposed to nature have less anxiety less depression they're happier i mean ultimately this is a a fundamental argument for why on our planet today we need to preserve pristine environments we need to preserve biodiversity i mean from a selfish perspective simply not one that i'm advocating but from a selfish perspective you know there's lots of, of value added that we get from this clean air clean water now i would go beyond that to say that the very existence of biodiversity is really one of the fundamental aspects of the history of life and we are compelled and duty-bound to preserve that but the point that you're raising i think just shows that we are fundamentally connected to our landscapes we depend on them for our food our our our, our oxygen our atmosphere but we also receive a lot of comfort and happiness from being in those things and I, and i think it's a compelling argument for why we need to to conserve nature preserve habitats and preserve biodiversity. So what puzzles you most about the evolution of life here on Earth? You know, I'm really fascinated about a lot of different aspects associated with the evolution and the history of life, but I think one of the biggest things, or, you know, sort of rank a few that, that really keep me fascinated by my profession and, and, and intrigued to continue to study evolution. And the first is that how on Earth did so many diverse species involve things as different as, as different as like an octopus and a manatee and in a redwood tree just to think of how these, these hundreds of millions of years of evolutionary history uh from a from a multicellular organism produced all these tremendous range of multicellular organisms and we could take that even further back in time to look at uh, bacterial evolution i don't focus on that but i think that's fascinating as well so it's like the diversity of life is one of the things that fascinates me. The other thing that really, or the other two things that fascinate me is, one, I'm, I'm amazed that we made it this far. Partly we've talked about things like gamma ray bursts, supernovae, asteroid impacts that, uh, that have occurred in this planet's past. In a way, it's amazing to think that the animals and plants have lasted so long, given the major environmental disruptions that life has repeatedly faced on this planet. And it's kind of the final thing to me is just sort of being able to, to think about what is driving evolution, when does evolution happen, sort of what are the environmental triggers, the specific environmental triggers that lead to the speciation events that ultimately produce the evolution of some of the key characters that, that are 
uh, key features that scientists and the general public are fascinated by. Things like the origins of intelligence, the origins of flight, the ability to move on land. Sort of what are the triggers that facilitated these events? How much did chance play a role? What are the roles of the environment? Those are kind of the big three for me that, that kind of fascinate me. They puzzle me because you know, we have a bit of the answers, but not all of them, and, and kind of keep me jazzed and intrigued about, about being a paleobiologist and getting to study this stuff for a living. So what's the most difficult hurdle for the evolution of intelligence, do you think? I, I think there's a few things that... That the need to be put in context first. So when we talk about intelligence, we want to say what specific aspects of intelligence uh, or what are we defining? And I think one of the key things about intelligence is the ability to use tools and also to transmit knowledge from one generation to the other. And I do think that there are there are a fair number of species that do have some innate intelligence, some species that have the ability to use technology, things like crows, things like the octopus, and, and, and of course, primates and, and us. Dolphins, they're able to use certain things in their environment to, uh, or to modify the environment or certain parts of the environment to modify it to their, to their advantage. And gosh darn it. I don't know what are the forces that triggered it. It's truly fascinating to me, uh, but I'm not, partly because I focus on invertebrate fossils and I don't get into the evolution of, of technology or, or the development of technology as much. I'm kind of somebody who looks at that from the outside and, and, and I think that we don't have any, we have some good hypotheses, but we don't have any firm answers as to why that happened and how it happened. It just did happen. So do you expect that intelligent life is rare or ubiquitous in the cosmos? So I do think, this is a great question, right? The, I do think that life is ubiquitous. I think that some form of intelligence, uh, given that, I think that some form of intelligence evolves on many, many, you know, talking a tremendous number of planets. Now, is it the type of intelligence, though, that leads to technological civilizations that are capable of space travel that could communicate with us? That, I think, is going to be very rare because it, we can have things that are highly intelligent on this planet, but just because of their, 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 their structure, their anatomy, or where they live – are less likely to develop technologies than other types of organisms. So I guess I'd say life is very likely, intelligence is pretty likely, but complex civilizations or, or technological civilizations or, or any civilization, that's going to be very rare. So in other words, space-fearing civilizations, you think, are going to be rare? Yeah, or and or they're going to be so far away from us that we it'd be very unlikely that we could come into contact that with them. On the flip side, I will say to me, it's just comforting to be able to think that hey, when I I look up the star at the stars, especially with the new research that has shown how how common exoplanets are, I think it's just really incredibly likely that life is is present in so many star systems, and and that's just fascinating. So I'm guessing that uh, because, uh, you, you know, you must have a very kind of unique perspective on our technological society since you study such ancient life and evolution, all of which were pre precursors to the onset of our own technological civilization. So 
If you look around your own kitchen and you see all the technology we've harnessed via metallurgy, invention, harnessing of the electromagnetic spectrum for computing, communication, cooking, and our own personal climate control. I mean, but are you amazed at how far life has progressed on our planet in three and a half billion years? I, I truly am. If you think about the technological wonders that, that gosh, have just even um, developed in the last 50 or 25 years. So sort of if you look at the curve of, of tool use and the appearance of new technologies since our, since our species evolved, it's, it's been exponential for at least the last 40,000 plus years, and it's in a tremendous upward curve. So one of the things is that I am just so grateful to the inventors out there and all the things that have been accomplished. The things that we can do in, in space travel, too, the ability to detect signatures of, of exoplanets by looking at subtle things like gravitational wobble or, or changes in the light that, that, that is transmitted via stars, or even then using that to spectroscopically capture atmospheres uh, or or potentially capture the atmospheric composition of, of these distant planets it's absolutely amazing so i do think that what the human species has accomplished with technology is is prodigious and amazing so finally uh, when you look up at a clear night sky do you automatically imagine some impending cataclysm that might spell disaster for earth itself what goes through your head you know, there have been times in my life when I have been more lugubrious and I might focus on such gloomy events. But I will say that those, the chances of those truly cataclysmic events are so rare and they happen so infrequently compared to the to life of any individual and even, indeed of most species that I don't think we have to worry about those type of events. Instead, when I'm looking to the stars, I'm just really inspired by thinking of all the all the potential worlds that exist out there, um, you know, the, the vast realm of space, the tremendous possibilities of, of, of different vistas. So to me, space and, and just its existence and the existence of all these exoplanets, that, that's what I get when I look up at the stars. I mean, I would more, worry more about astronomical or astrophysical phenomena closer to home i'm more worried about like a solar flare or you know, the coronal mass uh, ejection this could have a major impact on our technological uh, society and you know and i would worry a little bit about asteroid impact too i think those are things that we can prepare for and are more likely to experience but at the end of the day when i'm looking up at the stars at night i'm pretty relaxed and chill Bruce, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or to learn more? Yes, absolutely. So my Twitter handle is Trilolite. That's T-R-I-L-O-L-I-G-H-T. And also my email address at the University of Kansas is Lieber. That's B-L-I-E-B-E-R at K-U dot E-D-U. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Bruce Lieberman, thanks so much for helping us better understand how we all got here. Hey, thanks very much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, 
clear skies. Music provided by RFM.